Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 351 of the podcast. It is November 11th, 2019. And joining me today are my friends Joel Tosi and Dion Stewart. They're co-founders of the company Dojo and Company. They're the authors of the new book. It's going to be released on November 19th, titled Creating Your Dojo, Upskill Your Organization for Digital Evolution. So a dojo is a learning environment, whether that's for the martial arts or if it's a what they call, for example, a safety dojo in a Toyota factory. So today we're talking about what it means to create, as they call it, an immersive learning environment in a workplace, such as a software company or a product development group within a larger company. You know, the goal is having more effective learning, progress, and adoption of new methods or products. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit, but um, it's kind of an open question. It's interesting to think about how one might use a dojo in the context of lean uh, design or improvement efforts in a hospital or other settings. Um, Joel Dion and I have collaborated before on a few events. They've had me come speak at um, an Agile conference, um, one of their dojo consortium events. And we also collaborated on hosting a learning symposium um, in Texas last year where we visited um, Toyota and Garrison Brothers Distillery. We had a lot of great discussion uh, with the people who came from around the country to take part of that. So if you want to see links um, to their book and um, the interesting work they're doing and everything we talk about here, um, you can go to leanblog.org slash 351. Well, hey, Joel and Dion, it's great to have you here on the podcast. How's it going? Going well, Mark. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Good morning, Mark. Thanks. Good to talk to you again. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we've collaborated on some things and uh, it, it, and and had a lot of chances to, to talk in person. And I'm really glad that we can now do the podcast and, and share a little bit about your work and your book. And we can explore this idea of dojos and, and how it might apply even um, outside of the realm of um, software. But, you know, before we get into all of that, I always like to let guests just introduce yourselves, tell us about your professional backgrounds, what you do, and then we'll, we'll talk after that, maybe talk about how, how you two started working together and, and talk about your company. But Joel, if, if you can go first. Yeah, sure. Uh, so name's Joel Tosi, born and raised, live in Chicago, all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, started off earlier in my career as a, as a software engineer building uh, trading systems. So for the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, kind of did that for a while. Uh, and then there, in the early 2000s, uh, my uh, executive director, I was an architect at the time, was asking me to figure out how we were, we were doing a lot of things duplicative. And so he wanted me to create a better system so we didn't have to do things in duplicative form. And it was around that time I started uh, getting exposed to some of these uh, quote-unquote agile practices uh, and XP practices. But even uh, software aside, I'm sure you can imagine that the problem wasn't that we needed a better system. The problem was really just nobody ever talked to each other. Nobody knew kind of mm. who was doing what or why. And that's why we started getting all this duplicative effort. Um, so it, you know, I did that for a while. Then I started going into the space of um, helping teams. Uh, at first, it was helping teams just learn to talk better. And over the course of the years, you know, I went through various roles uh, in software and I landed in a space kind of uh, when I started meeting Dion, where it was 
less about te- uh, technology and software and less about process and more about people creating interesting products. Uh, and that's kind of where we're at today. Uh, you know, I'm just in this space where um, technology is fun, writing code is fun, but sometimes the best thing is really just when you get to see people get excited about making other people happy and making other people excited using their products. That's that's kind of where I'm at today. Yeah, and you know, we'll we'll delve into you know we talk about agile and XP. You know, we'll we'll come back and ask you guys to sort of define some of that because I think a lot of our listeners might not be um, from from a software uh, perspective uh, background. But it, it's interesting you talk about communication challenges. That's that's so true in a lot of settings that we have you know process issues. Um, you know, it, it's it's not the technical issues; it's the social issues that that trip us up so often. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so we'll we'll talk more about that today. And 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 Dion, if you can introduce yourself, please. Yeah. So hi, I'm Dion Stewart. Uh, like Joel, I have a background as a developer. So it, it's been a while now, but a few decades ago, I was doing programming and development in a language called Smalltalk. Uh, it wasn't a real popular language, a real common language. It was a little bit of a, a niche language, niche language. Um, but there were practices that the community of developers um, that use that language were doing. Those eventually got codified into a methodology called extreme programming um, that Kent Beck created, who was sort of a luminary in the, the small talk community. Um, so I know we'll talk about kind of agile and some of these other things as we go forward. But uh, for right now, the set of practices that I learned doing small talk kind of became part of this agile style of development. So in the early 2000s, in addition to just programming and doing product development, I was also put in roles where I was asked to help other people learn how to do some of these practices. And I kind of moved into this uh, developer slash coach role, sort of of a player coach kind of thing. Somewhere around the end of the the 2000s, early 2000s, that first decade, I moved into kind of full-time coaching. And for the last 10 years, I've been coaching teams and kind of coaching at a higher level than teams, eventually in some organizations, kind of up to the C-suite level and helping organizations go through uh, change initiatives. And ultimately, that's led to this thing called the dojo that Joel and I are doing now. Yeah, so it's interesting you talk about being a coach or being a, a player coach. You know, what what, what happens um, in software development career paths when someone maybe moves from being an engineer, a coder, a developer in, into some sort of management function? Do, do people generally then stop coding or or what, what's what's typical? Uh, that's an interesting question these days because stop coding implies that you coded at one point. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, uh, almost 20 years ago now, at least 15 years ago now, anyone who I knew that called themselves a coach uh, had a background in coding. So there were a lot of technical practices that were part of extreme programming. And everyone who called themselves a coach knew those technical practices and had a coding background. I didn't set out to call myself a coach. The The consulting firm I was working for at the time kind of threw that title on me and, and started billing me out that way. There, At the time, there was advantage in doing that. Now, there are a lot of people that call themselves agile coaches or lean coaches that don't have any kind of technical background whatsoever. 
Hmm. Um, I, I think there's there's good and bad there. There are people I've met who don't have technical backgrounds that are really, really good coaches. They understand the people, the collaborative side, the process side, and the really good ones understand the product development side. So how to do product discovery and really get inside the heads of customers and develop new customers and markets where it's a whole new product and there isn't a customer base. Um, but yeah, for me, I, I don't know if I can answer the question about moving from an engineering role into a coaching role kind of for the whole industry. Mm-hmm. For me, it was just sort of a weird gradual transition. It started off with me not having I would say any general coaching skills, just, well, I know how to do this practice, let me show you. And then at a certain point, I realized, well, if this is going to be my role, I probably need to start studying coaching and leading and how to teach people and um, all of those kinds of aspects that, that coaching, the general coaching skills that a lot of really good coaches have. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is the answer to my question is, well, it, it varies. It depends. There's pros and cons because, you know, I think of in the healthcare realm, uh, you know, people tend to move up from frontline professional work into management. So let's say, you know, a nurse becomes a nurse manager and then they might get promoted to being a director and, and you know, however far up they go, they, they generally stop with the practice of, of bedside nursing. And as time goes on, it seems like some of these leaders, there's a risk that they're, they, they know how the work used to be done, yeah. but technology and practices and medicine change sort of like software languages and, and software development practices change. Right. Right. So I don't think I answered your question directly about, do I still no, code? No, right. um, I, I do. So last night on the, the plane home from a client site, I was actually doing a little bit of work in F Sharp, which is a newer programming language, trying to learn how to apply uh, some techniques from this method called domain-driven design in that language. So as much as I can, I stay as close to the tech as I can. There's still a difference between coding eight hours a day and the amount of time that I'm able to spend coding. But for me as a coach, it's important to keep my technical chops up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I could see where that would be important, and um, yeah, it's just a thought starter for thinking about parallels to other industries. I mean, I think back to when I was at General Motors, you know, back in the manufacturing standpoint, supervisors and managers were generally hired in as such, you know, and, and there was this split between the hourly workers and the salaried workers, you know, that the salaried workers generally had a college education, and they had skills and knowledge, but they didn't have, it, it, it was, you know, some of them were better than others at understanding the frontline perspectives since they had never done that work and, and weren't allowed to do that work because of um, union rules, for example. But, you know, it's interesting where I think Toyota tends to have people move and progress from team member to team leader. You know, they don't have the union constraints. But I, you know, I, I could see whether, you know, there's real value and understanding the work and, and, and that helps you understand then people that are doing that work, right? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe before, you know, we talk about Dojo and company and, and the book, and I, I think this might be helpful background for some people who know all this may want to hit fast forward um, <laughs> 30 seconds at a time, but uh, if, if, if you, you know, if you guys can give maybe kind of the elevator pitch, um, you know, kind of overview for those who, those of us, I'll, I'll say me included, who don't really understand software, 
Um, maybe starting, I don't know, does it make sense to start with XP or extreme programming, as you both mentioned, kind of cover that, then agile, then DevOps, or I don't know if there's a historical order that makes sense. What, what do you guys think? I think the historical order might make a lot of sense. Uh, is that is that cool, Dion? Yeah. Why don't Why don't you kind of go through that? Yeah. So, um, you know, going back to like say even uh, you know the '90s, right? There was always you know the the kind of inswell of uh, of technology, um, and back then the whole idea was, uh, or I guess you could say the challenge was. Um, how do we take these these big uh, deliverables, these big pieces of projects, these big initiatives that we want to deliver uh, over the course of a year? And then how do we figure out, get some level of transparency into figuring out how we're going about delivering it? Uh, in the 90s, it was really hard until the, uh, you know, the very end uh, of a project to figure out, especially in the software space, if you were going to be on time. Um, historically, what would happen is, everything was always on track. You know, you're at, at 80% of your time, you're 80% done, but it turns out that last 20% took a lot more than 20% of your time. Uh, you know, you'd be integrating code, you'd actually be doing real testing. And so back then the challenge was really just uh, how do we figure out and get transparency to if we're delivering the projects kind of on time. Uh, and so the, the some practices like Dion mentioned, XP started popping up. Uh, and XP did some things around um, trying to make quality come sooner in the process and trying to give more transparency. It also did some nice things that I think people forgot about, about trying to get closer to the customer. Mm. Um, but so that's, that was kind of the intent early on in the XP space. And so, again, kind of thinking more about kind of like this project uh, kind of timeline. You know, how do we know if we're doing well in the project? I think what happened then early in the 2000s is... Uh, it became this process um, space. And so it was, as Dia mentioned earlier, things started to become codified. And you could even say at that point, as soon as they were codified, they started to become sell or sold. People would sell certifications that you knew the process. And so you, you kind of lost the idea of, um, you know, are things being on time? And it all became about the process. And so all of these, you know, to your point, Mark, all these bad metrics would come up. All of a sudden people were tracking uh, how fast a team was going and they weren't really ever thinking about if they're going in the right direction. It was always just, mm. man, they're going really fast somewhere. <laughs> we don't know if they're going to run into a wall or go off a cliff, but man, they're going fast. And <laughs> if I, if I'm their manager, I want to know how they can go faster. And so the early two thousands, you know, became kind of about the process and even about certification. Um, and so that's where if you call, um, yeah, this were some of these ideas around Scrum. If you've heard about Scrum a lot, uh, Scrum is a is a big. Uh, I wouldn't say big, but it's it's focused on a, a process and almost a management aspect of the process. Um, then moving forward, you start getting into these things where people realize uh, it's not just about going fast; it's about it's about doing the right thing. And so, so coming back to that, so then you know you get the process stuff going on, and then. Um, I think two things started happening after that. People started asking this question around uh, how do we learn about our customers better? How do we deliver better products sooner? And and so and then it's this idea of design thinking and product thinking started coming into the agile space. Uh, at the same time, when that was starting to happen, this is, I don't know, maybe 2010-ish, um, people started saying, what's what's slowing us down from learning about our customers? And so for a lot of places, the things that were slowing them down was 
the ability to create infrastructure to support the software. So things like getting servers ready, getting networks ready, um, all of those things started to become the, the constraints. And so this is where the DevOps movement came in. It was all about how do we make it easier for developers to de- deploy products so that somebody could learn about products. And so it was about automating the kind of the right side of the value stream, if you think about it. It's kind of the operational runtime of it. Um, and so I don't know if that helps. So if you think about the, the XP idea, was just really about how do we get transparency into our, into our projects, get better ideas if our projects are on time. Scrum kind of started codified around a process and a more of a management view of the world. Um, and then around the late, you know, 2008, 2009, it became heavier about product thinking about, are we building the right thing? And then the DevOps side came in and said, let's create stable systems so people can experiment and learn better. Um, Maybe that makes sense in my world. Dion, could you synthesize it better if I did a bad job? Well, I was, I was going to a bit before asking a follow up. So we, 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 there, there are some common, like to me, I think lean themes um, that you mentioned, Joel, of trying to build in quality. Yeah. Earlier in the process, instead of, I guess the software equivalent of inspection is is testing, right? And getting closer to the customer. That's a good goal. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so I think another important thing to mention here is uh, probably 16, 17 years ago now, Mary and Tom Poppendick started writing on lean software development. So Mary had worked at 3M um, as a programmer for a while. At a certain point, she was in a leadership role in their videotape division. Um, So that tells you how long ago it was. (laughs) But um, she tells stories about how they converted to a lean manufacturing process over a weekend at one point because they were sort of getting clobbered in the marketplace by their competitors. And by doing that, they had all these benefits that you might imagine, you know, reduced cycle time, improved quality, et cetera. But one of the the ideas that I learned from her, I was lucky enough to meet her a long time ago um, when I was living in Minneapolis. And there are a lot of principles from Lean that she started having many of us think about in terms of software delivery. The idea that you can't inspect quality in by doing testing at the very end, yeah. mm-hmm. which t- does tie back very much to extreme programming. Uh, Kent Beck is one of um, is the creator of the automated and automated unit testing framework for code uh, that originally came out in Smalltalk, but it has since been uh, ported or copied over to just about every programming language on the planet. And the idea with that framework is that you write the tests first. So you think about what the code needs to do. You think about how you're going to prove that the quality is there. You create those tests before you write any code. So it was the complete opposite of sort of inspecting quality in at the end. It was building it in, literally. Um, Other ideas that Mary and Tom sort of exposed the rest of the world to were things like eliminating waste. You know, there's sort of the seven classic forms of waste and lean, and they talked about how those translate to various aspects of software development. But I think the even bigger thing, sort of the punchline with them, is they were the first ones, at least in my world, that got me and a group of other people in Minneapolis thinking about the entire value stream yeah. for developing software products. You know, it, it, prior to my introduction to them, the, the world for most software developers kind of started with some project kickoff meeting 
So there was already a lot of work that had been done. ROI decisions had been made. Um, I think the biggest idea Mary and Tom exposed me and a lot of other developers in Minneapolis and all over the world really too, but at the time living in Minneapolis was this idea of looking at the entire value stream. Mm -hmm. So prior to that, uh, my concept of development was you get invited to a project kickoff meeting, a whole bunch of work had been done before that. And then, uh, you weren't part of it though. And you did your work and your work was done when your sort of the artifacts that you created were checked in to a um, repository or somewhere on a file system on a computer that other people would then uh, deploy. So as Joel was mentioning, you know, servers and putting things into production. So as a developer, your view of the value stream was very narrow. It was this segment in the middle. And Mary's really the one who first got us thinking about the entire thing. DevOps, I, I think to a large extent, is an extension, like Joel mentioned, the right side of the value stream. So let's talk about everything that happens after you commit code all the way up until the time that the product is in the customer's hands and they're getting value from it. And let's optimize uh, that part of the value stream. Uh, this is maybe looking ahead a little bit, but part of what we're doing in the dojo is trying to help organizations reconceive their ideas of what a team is. So it's not just coders and maybe not even just coders and testers, but it's everyone who has something to do along that entire product development value stream. Let's figure out how to connect those people so they can collaborate effectively together and really align around product delivery by thinking of and working on the entire value stream as opposed to, well, here's some people who are going to do some work up front. They're going to define a project, and then we're going to staff that project with a totally different group of people, and we sort of hand things over the wall to them. And then they're going to do their work and hand things over the wall to a different group who's going to do operations. Hmm. And, and so part of all of this is um, kind of a process of, of trying to connect different functions into a better value stream. Is that another way of putting it? I, I think that the, so the, the functions already exist. They just tend to not exist together. Like if, if right. you think, right. yeah, that's right. kind of what it is. Everybody optimizes the queue. They don't optimize the flow. Yeah. And, and so, so we're, we're trying, trying to break, get people break like down to those silos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Through through the product development process, and you know, one, one other question here. You know, people can go research um, these di these different terms. Like to me, it's still a bit of a jumble. Um, like for example, the, the difference between agile and Scrum is Scrum kind of a subset of practices within agile, or is it is that not the case? Yeah, I mean, it tends to be Agile's the big umbrella and Scrum's a piece of it. Um, but I think the question's uh, even more interesting than, than that, uh, Mark, is a lot of places we go, uh, people will ask us about, you know, what, what, how do we do Agile? How do we do this? And the, I, the thing that Deanna and I do with a lot of groups is like, we shouldn't focus on the words because as soon as we focus on the words, we lost the meaning. Uh, I think it was, a, wasn't it a, a Taichi Ono thing? He didn't want to call it lean because he didn't want people to worry about doing lean uh, or well he didn't want to codify things he, exactly so yeah yeah, yeah. and so it's the same thing like uh, by all means your listeners can can look it up it's just it, we shouldn't get lost in the vernacular of it all you know yeah. that's that's kind of what we want people to get out of it 
Yeah, but it seems like the goal is um, how to have a better product development process, how to have a more effective company. It's not about the details of how the coding is done per se, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, you shared a little bit about your background and, and you know, before we, we talk about the book, um, uh, creating your dojo, I mean, how, how did you create your company or how did you start working together um, with the company Dojo and Company? Or do you, you say Dojo and Co? Yeah. I, I want to hear Dion's story because, well, partially, I don't remember how I met you, Dion. So let me hear your story <laughs> and how we met. <laughs> yeah. So... <laughs> I, I think it's pretty simple. I was working with a, a guy in Minneapolis named David Hussman, uh, who's pretty well known in the Agile community for years. Sadly, we lost him uh, a year or so ago. Um, but I was coaching with him. And uh, as I remember it, Joel, he had already worked with you at the Merck in Chicago, but I hadn't met you yet. And then we got to a point where we needed more people to coach with us and he brought you on. And I think, I think maybe the first time I met you in person was when we were both at a client down in Orlando. And then, you know, from that point on, we were at conferences together and various clients and, you know, meetings with David and things like that. All right. I'll go with that story. So, I I mean, picking up from there, so Joe and I were kind of working with David and uh, not too many clients together, but Target was the the first company that started one of these dojo environments. Mm -hmm. And they're headquartered in Minneapolis where David's company was headquartered. And uh, Joel and I both started working with them. And uh, initially, Joel was inside the dojo. I was kind of outside the dojo uh, doing some other workshops, working with leadership, helping them understand a a lot of these things, agile, lean principles, all those things applied to software development. Uh, Eventually, I got kind of pulled inside the dojo and uh, we coached there together. We moved on to a second company that wanted to start one of these immersive learning environments that we call dojos. And we both coached there for a couple of years while we were there is kind of when, when David got sick and we said, you know, we, we might want to start looking at doing something on our own. Uh, we put up the dojo and co website initially just to see kind of where this whole dojo thing would go. And as it turns out, there are many companies now that are, implementing or are interested in implementing these kinds of immersive learning environments. Uh, I think last count, the, the line of sight we had visibility to was over 30 companies are, are doing these immersive learning environments. So the, the initial idea was just to keep us working to help each other, uh, you know, stay billable, so to speak, um, on the one hand. On the other hand, we've both been coaching for a really long time, um, you know, over 15 years apiece. And I think for both of us, we've had conversations about this many times. For both of us, this dojo model seems to be the most effective form that our coaching has taken on in terms of really having an impact in organizations and really getting to a point where the, the learning that's happening with the, with the teams that we work with, it sticks. You know, it's like they're able to continue it forward, carry it forward. We'll, re, we'll revisit and follow up with teams 
months after they've been through one of these dojo experiences and they're still able to apply a lot of the practices that we've uh, worked with them on and in many cases have adopted new practices because part of what we're trying to help uh, teams learn in the dojo is this approach of continuous improvement mm-hmm. and this learning mindset. So s- success is is really when a team not only learns things in the dojo, but adopts this style of continuous improvement and is is that just becomes part of the way they work going forward. Yeah, so yeah, I, I think you've given kind of the high level. Um, you know, the a dojo is an immersive learning environment, as as you call it. Um, but but I wonder if you could go you know a little bit more detail about what what a, a dojo is. I, th- I think of the movie Karate Kid. You know, you have the the karate training dojo. Um, I think Toyota, if I remember right, from from tours, they have an area. Um, that they they call um, a something or other dojo where production workers are brought offline into an area to learn um, different techniques. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting concept. But can, can you share a little more detail about what this means in um, you know, a software development context or maybe, maybe the story about how and why that got started at Target might help illustrate some of that? Yeah, so uh, I'll, I'll start at least and give you a little bit of background with uh, with Target and kind of how it evolved, and we could talk about the teams too a little bit. Um, so, you know, kind of as Dean mentioned, we were coaching for years. We were brought in Target. This this seemed to to kind of work. When Target started up their dojo at first, um, the 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 concept was um, they wanted to get better, just kind of the right side of the value stream. They wanted to get better at DevOps, and this is kind of again uh, a few months before Dion uh, and I were there. And so they got a, a small group together and they said, hey, let's do some experiments and see what we can do here kind of so, to get better as a small group, what we can learn together uh, to get better at this very one small set of practice. And like the, the reason why they called it the dojo was one of the gentlemen there, uh, Jason Walker, uh, was asked, well, you know, what should we call it? And he goes, well, ninjas go to the dojo to train. Let's call it a dojo. <laughs> I don't know if ninjas train the dojo, but at least it's... <laughs> That's the that's the background I was given. Um, so they they did this and the team worked well. And then uh, a, a manager came in and said that was interesting. I want to send my, some of my engineers down there um, to learn some things, and but they have to be done in thirty days. And so they came into this space. And again, this is right before Deanna and I came there. Uh, and so they work in thirty days and they learned some things and they moved on. And then uh, they, they they wanted to kind of grow out and and scale this. And so that's when they. They brought Dion and, uh, uh, and myself in. I was there a little bit before Dion. Um, and I remember I sat down the first day to, to you know, work with, a, to coach a team. And the team had no idea why they were there. They had kind of no orientation or no alignment, but they were going to learn some things. And I remember thinking, that's, that's interesting, but kind of how does this impact, you know, why does, if the team doesn't know why they're there, kind of like, how do they know what's going to help them? It was just kind of fuzzy. Um, and there was, it was just an interesting spec. And I remember then I talked to a few other groups and kind of, how did it go before with other teams? Oh, they learned some things. Okay. Did it help? Well, not really because, you know, X, Y, and Z. As soon as they left, it didn't stick and, you know, they wanted to be used a certain way. So you could kind of understand they were learning in a, in a, in a silo. And so then we introduced these, these simple things around, uh, it's going to sound silly, but giving context to your learning. So, if we learn X, how does it affect the overall flow? Why do we yeah. want to learn X? You know, how do we know X is helping us? And so just real kind of simple framing for teams. 
um, to help teams kind of come in uh, and learn these things. So th- that's kind of the, I guess, the history to how we got there. W- what, a, what a dojo is, um, a team comes in and works with a coach uh, for six weeks. And then we can talk about the time frame if it's interesting. Um, but in essence, they're, they're focusing on learning and applying new skills over the course of six weeks. It's not, um, it's not made up uh, exercises. Where, uh, some places, if they'll do katas, and the katas are kind of interesting, they're great practices, but they're, they're separated from the actual work. So a team comes in and they bring in their actual product. Uh, and so we start off by get, talking context. How does this benefit your customer? How does, uh, what are your challenges? And let's talk about some ideas that you might want to learn that you think would be better for your customer and better for you, for you as a team. Um, and so really they, they create their own learning needs and they create their own learning desires and outcomes and what success means to them. And then these, the coaches, uh, we sit with them and early on we teach heavily. But it's not. We're not teaching them philosophy. We're we're giving them kind of like you said. This hurts. Here's an idea. Here's a practice. Here's how it works. Let's do it right now with your stuff, and let's see what happens. So it's kind of this this small kind of small iterative, continuous learning, continuous improvement that we do with teams over and over again. Um, oh yeah. What, what would be an example of the type of questions they would have or what they want to learn? If, if they're coming in with a, a software product, would a question be like, how could we, um, how, how, how can we increase usage of the product and amongst current customers? I mean, are these business challenges, technical challenges? It depends. It spans the spectrum, but I, so I can give you an example of a team I was working with uh, just this week. So the brilliant engineers, they built this beautiful platform uh, and they built it for three years and nobody is using it. <laughs> and so on the business side, it's kind of like we spent a lot of money. It would be really good if somebody used this platform. Um, and so the, the thing they've learned this first week was, uh, you know, if you ask them who's going to use your platform everybody's going to use it. Everybody, it's going to solve world hunger, right? It's going to solve all the problems everywhere. And it's like, okay, well, give me an example of somebody. And they couldn't give you an example of somebody. And so it's like, okay, so let's talk to actual people that you think this might help and let's understand their world. So the things they've learned this first week, they haven't even coded yet. And one of the engineers was saying at first, I really, I need to code. I need to code. But at the end of the week, uh, she realized the worst thing I could have done was started coding on Monday because we were very wrong about what the customers needed. So mm-hmm. the, this first week, they've just really learned, you call it customer empathy, call it you know product thinking. That's what they've learned. Next week, we're, we're going to be teaching them and, and guiding them on how do you take a, a small customer pain point and how do you, uh, you know, actually write the code against it, but how do you do it with quality first and how do you do it in a repeatable manner? And so now they're going to learn kind of better engineering practices and better operation practices. And then they're going to show it to their customer and they're going to get feedback and they have to, you know, uh, learn to um, get the feedback and how that incorporates that into their next learning. So that's, so they've learned kind of customer empathy. They're going to learn engineering. Then they're going to learn feedback loops all in the course of, you know, say six, seven days together. And, and so I would be curious to hear a little bit about the time frame. Um, you mentioned 30 days, six weeks. And is this, is this a full-time 40-hour-a-week activity for people in the dojo? Why don't you hop on that, Dan? 
Uh, yes, the short answer is yes. So the, the idea is we get people out of their normal work environment. So the, kind of rewinding a, a couple steps here, you, you mentioned um, the Toyota Dojo and sort of references to martial arts. That's exactly the idea here. So Dojo is a word that comes from uh, martial arts and uh, meditation halls. It's a Japanese word. The, the idea is this is a place of practice. It's where you go to learn. And uh, the 30-day the thing, as Joel sort of alluded to, it sort of happened by accident. Uh, initially, the time frames that teams were spending in, in the dojo in the first one were shorter than that. And I think a leader at a certain point said, I have this product deliverable that's due in 30 days. Can Can you work with my team to help them kind of meet that deliverable? And that's that's kind of how the first 30-day experience started. It seemed to be a good length of time. So uh, one of the things about the, the 30 days is it ends up being kind of six calendar weeks. And uh, from a coaching perspective, the coaches are very hands-on the first two weeks, at least in terms of kind of the agile and process work. The second two weeks, they can taper off a bit. The last two weeks, we're really looking for the team to kind of step up and own their own process. The more technical coaching, like how do you code well, how do you design well, how do you test well, you know, how do we take these manual tests and turn them into automated tests? A lot of the times that is uh, the coaching time is more sort of consistent throughout the six weeks. But this six-week time period turned out to be, just through experimentation, a pretty good block of time. It seemed like the right amount of time. Shorter than that, and teams weren't necessarily changing the way they work. The learning wasn't stick. They weren't adopting that continuous learning mindset. Anything longer than six weeks, and it sort of seems like the team is starting to get a little too dependent on the coaching they're receiving in the space and sort of this sense of urgency around, you know, we're going to come in and for a period of time, we're going to practice and focus on learning over delivery. It, 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 anything beyond six weeks just seems like too much experimentally. Yeah, I wish I had better answers. Like you know, neurological studies have shown that you know this is the optimal time frame. Yeah. Um, coincidentally, there are books that I've read about forming habits, and the time frame seems to be similar. But that certainly wasn't our intent going in. There was there was no science behind this. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, a lot of times we we learn through practice. If something seems to be effective, well, then good. Right. Yeah. So that that is a key component of, of the dojo. So, you know, just sort of looking at principles, it's learning over delivery. It is about practice and it's about repetitive practice. So it, it's not just, OK, we're going to learn this technique this week and the next week. It's a whole new set of techniques. And in week three, you know, traditional training kind of approaches things that way. If, if you go to a course or a workshop, there's a syllabus and usually it, it's building upon itself. So you're doing foundational stuff earlier and you're learning more and more advanced techniques throughout the, the workshop. You might even be doing some kind of exercise that is building on itself. So there, there are coding workshops where you're starting a code base at the beginning and at the end of two days, you've built up something that's got a moderate level of complexity and you've successfully done it but it's mostly because you sort of followed instructions along the way. And oftentimes, if, if you were asked to repeat that over the next two days by yourself, 
it's really hard because you haven't practiced. You know, you've you've done each step once. You haven't done that repetitive work to ingrain it and to really learn it and form habits around working that way. Yeah. Yeah. So one, one thing I was going to ask is if it's a hard sell to get six calendar weeks of, of time, but I, but I think you, you, you sort of already answered the, the question. It, it's probably not as tough of a sell because this is not taking people off into disconnected education time or training time. Like this is, this is kind of a focused work effort with an emphasis on learning by doing. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's really fair to say. Um, I, I would say there are still some. As, when you want, when you ask a team to come in, it's not always yes. That's obvious. I want to do it, um, especially when we're starting up the new. When we start up a new dojo in a new organization, the first team is always hesitant because there's no kind of. Uh, I shouldn't say always, but usually there's, mm-hmm. there's some hesitation just because they, they you know they might want to learn things, but they're still like I don't know what's going to happen. And a lot of organizations too, they're not incentivized. Um, to be creative. It's, it sounds, it might sound harsh, but even the team I was working with this week, uh, this one woman that wants to be a coach, she was very uh, blunt and she goes, look, uh, it doesn't matter what this team produces as long as they produce it on time, I'm successful. And it's like, wow. And it it, it wasn't, it wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just, you know, kind of end to end. It was just, did this team finish what they needed to finish by a date? And so, sometimes we hit this kind of organizational inertia where we also have to convince people like uh, management, you you know, this team wants to learn something. They're going to do some work, but you can't, we can't apply this undue stress of if it's not perfect in six weeks by the date that I arbitrarily made up, then it's a failure. We also kind of need to guide leadership through these experiences as well. Yeah, I mean, that comment, I mean, <laughs> hearing um, somebody say, it doesn't matter what we produce as long as we produce it on time. Yeah. Um, that seems like, uh, you know, generalizing here, it's, it's not a very lean mindset. It reminds me of being back in, you know, uh, General Motors where it was quantity over quality. And I've, I've seen that in other workplaces where nobody would really say it as directly. It doesn't matter the quality of what we're producing as long as we hit our numbers. Yep. Um, but, but boy, that was, that was evident in practice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We do run into this in, in the dojo because even though teams are bringing their real world work in, which is, Important, and the, the reason for that is primarily to make the learning stick and make it contextual. Um, but they're still slowing down to learn. So there's still a conversation around, you know, how, how, what's the value in taking a little bit of time to slow down to learn better ways of working rather than just keep working the way you're doing and maybe expecting your employees to improve their skills at night reading books, practicing new techniques or on the weekends or whatever. Right. So, um, it, it can be, it it can be an interesting conversation with people in leadership roles and it gets into all kinds of things that I'm sure your audience understands and experiences all the time, which is the, the, the mindset and the value system that people have might very well align with bringing their teams into a dojo space, but what are the incentives in the organization and what measurements are in place that they're also trying to work within. So, the, you know, the overall system, does the overall system in the organization 
support this this learning and this slowing down for a little bit of a period of time in order to improve um, and, and get better. Yeah. Slowing down might even be the wrong word because again, it's it's all about productivity and output, right? But if if we were to pause and reflect a little bit on the way we work, could quality increase increase dramatically? And right. is that an investment worth making? Well, but what you're saying that reminds me, there's a, a Toyotaism of go slow to go fast. So you may yeah. intentionally say, okay, well, we, we're we're going to slow down so we can learn some things, but the intent is to then go faster than we had been going before. You can look at patterns around, let's say, you know, Toyota factory ramp up rates. Um, Toyota plants generally would ramp up production much more slowly um, than, let's say, you know, a typical big three plant that would be a lot more aggressive in trying to get the full production. Um, But then the plant that's more aggressive about trying to get there faster inevitably has more problems over time and probably lower productivity over the standpoint of years than the factory that took longer to more intentionally ramp up to a more sustainable, more predictable throughput rate. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I wish more people in the software space were aware of that. Um, Because a lot of people in the software space these days are aware of trying to apply lean principles to software development, right? But I think they look at a running Toyota plant and say, you know, okay, that's where we want to go. So on Monday morning, we're going to line everyone up at the end of the pool and dive in together. Yeah. Going to the cloud, migrating to the cloud in the software world is a perfect example of this. Um, what organizations who want to move into the cloud should be doing is something analogous to that, right? Like, mm-hmm. let's take our time as we're first starting to get to the cloud and make sure we do it right and we'll ramp up. And instead, there are often these uh, initiatives, you know, like by X date, everyone will be in the cloud. And that only causes problems so far that we've seen. Yeah. Uh, One one other question um, before talking about the book a little bit before we have to wrap up just uh, due to to timing here. Um, If an organization came to you and said, this question is going to seem kind of meta or recursive, but I mean it as a serious question, not just to be cute about it. If an organization came to you and said, Joel, Dion, we want to create this dojo structure within our large organization, can we set up a dojo for the purposes of creating the dojo model? (laughs) That's that's interesting. Uh, So to... to, um, Wow. I would tell you this, when, when, when organizations want to start a dojo, we, I was going to call it, we take them through a mini dojo, but we actually take them through uh, value streaming, uh, the dojo and the impact they want to have it. So some of the practices that teams actually learn before we start a dojo or before we t- tell a, a, an organization it's a good idea, we kind of, I guess you, you maybe we could call it, we, do a, we give them a mini dojo at, at the kind of the organizational level to see if it'll be, to see if they're aligned. That's an interesting question. What do you think, Dion? Yeah, I, I think that's true. I think it's, I think we sort of start what a dojo experience for a team would look like with yeah. them. It doesn't really end before we bring the first team in. That sort of the the meta level dojo experience, if you will, continues on. Uh, one of the other things Joel and I do in these dojos is we call it coach the coaches. So mm-hmm. in addition to helping teams that are coming through, organizations usually staff a dojo with at least some of their own employees. They might bring in consultants to help initially, 
But uh, we're also working with those coaches to help them become better coaches, you know, coaching katas and yeah. pairing with them as we're working with teams, all, all of those kinds of things with the idea that eventually Joel and I and other consultants can move out and the organization can sustain this themselves. And periodically we will stop and do some of the practices that we do with teams with the dojo staff for a lack of a better word. Yeah. So the book, um, again, it's uh, creating your dojo upskill your organization for digital evolution. It's it's available uh, on Amazon as a paperback and a Kindle book. Um, but you know, writing a book is is always a big undertaking. What what led to the book? What five, years. Yeah, five years. <laughs> it is a big undertaking. Yeah. Uh, like like Dan mentioned, we we were coaching for a while on this. It felt like this was being impactful for organizations. And at first, it was just like we should share a lot of these ideas, and it'll only be fifteen or twenty pages, and it'll be a nice little white paper. And mm-hmm. then uh, we tried writing. And it became bigger <laughs> and bigger and bigger. Um, the, the point of the book was really just, I, ideally, it's just read the book uh, and you could do this on your own. Uh, mm. Dion and I are pretty cool people. We love to help people. But if, 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 we, if we can't help you, uh, but the book does and you're successful, that's, that's really impactful for us. We, we think this, this idea of making learning what you do every day, I guess, regardless of domain, yeah. it's just such a, such a powerful thing that if more people embraced it, uh, yeah. I think we'd all be in a better spot. So, so um, maybe I'll ask Dion, who's the target audience for the book? People in, in, in what industries, what levels is it really, do you think, you know, it talks, talks about digital evolution. Is this geared more to people in software and technology companies or who do you think is going to be reading this book? I think initially it is geared more towards people who have some kind of software component of the products they're creating. Now, you know, knowing that we were talking to you this morning, I was kind of mulling over the question last night, could hospitals apply this kind of concept? And I think there's probably something there that a a more general audience could glean from this approach, you know, kind of setting up this separate dedicated learning space and how you might go about doing that. Our book is probably a little more specifically targeted toward technology organizations. Um, the ideal person is probably someone in kind of a change management role, or uh, I, I, we don't like using this word, but in charge of transformation. Uh, we specifically chose the word evolution for the title as opposed to transformation because transformations just carry all this baggage like, when is it going to be done? You know, how much do I fund the transformation? What's it going to take me for to get from A to B? Whereas evolution implies this ongoing uh, sort of process, which we <laughs> feel is more appropriate for this dojo mindset. But yeah, any anyone in a leadership role, we get calls a lot of times from people who are sort of in charge of the agile coaching group in their organizations, transformation leaders. Uh, there are people in kind of lean roles, lean six sigma black belts who are trying to improve processes and practices in their organizations. It could also be for coaches and leaders that, you know, don't necessarily have to be at that level in the org that maybe want to try this in more of a grassroots type of situation. Uh, We do know of a couple places where sort of people in a leadership role who are just trying to say, help an organization learn DevOps practices. 
have tried this approach, talking to other people they know and other organizations who are doing it with a small group of people and one or two teams just to see if it works for them. If they show success, the idea then is they can kind of run it up the chain in their orgs and, and talk about building a company-wide dojo. Hmm. Well, you know, I'm going to give that question some more thought as I read the rest of the book. Um, you know, thank you for sharing a little bit of the preview. And as I see here on Amazon, I've, I've pre-ordered the Kindle book. It says it'll be auto-delivered on uh, November 19th. And um, paperback is going to be about that same time frame, you think? Yes. Yeah. And thanks very much for pre-ordering the book. The one thing I would say to the audience, if uh, they hear this before the 19th, is maybe hold off to the 19th because I think there's going to be some sale pricing on the Kindle book. Ah, okay. I'll ask you to send me a check, Dion. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's all right. Just buy, buy, me, buy me a drink next time. We I was say, we'll, get, we'll buy you a nice uh, bourbon. So. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's worth more than $9.99. But <laughs> as we wrap up here, you know, I just want to let listeners know, if you go to dojoandco.com, that's spelled out, dojoandco.com, you can find more information about the book. You can click through to their website. And, and then I will mention um, on your behalf and, and, got, and dang it, I'm going to be out of town or I would ask you to come uh, hang out. Um, uh, there's going to be a workshop in Dallas, December 9th and 10th on uh, creating your own dojo. So I, I'm sorry that I won't, I won't be around to either attend or go take you up on that bourbon, but there'll be more opportunities for you. Trust me. So okay. don't worry about that. We'll, we'll, we'll figure that out. Well, maybe we'll go back to, um, We'll, we'll do another learning event like we did um, in San Antonio yeah. a little over a year ago. Most that definitely. was a lot of fun where we, we toured Toyota. We went to Garrison Brothers Distillery. Uh, it was great collaborating with you guys in your dojo consortium event up in Minneapolis. So we'll, we'll figure out something. Yeah. I think we're all trying to help people learn, right? And learning kind of goes across domains and boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for for what you've shared and um, it's, it's been great collaborating with you guys over time and uh, congratulations on the near launch of book. Um, I, I guess I'll leave it to you. Um, if you've got any final thought or anything else you want to mention, Dion? No, other than to say uh, thanks. Always good talking to you and thanks for having us on the podcast. Well, you're very welcome. And, and Joel, same thing. Thanks for having us. Looking forward to, to, to getting that drink with you. And for you. So, (laughs) (laughs) all right. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email Mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.